Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast of The Hindu. I'm Narayan Lakshman, Associate Editor of The Hindu. And today we'll be looking in two segments at the visit of US President Donald Trump to India, where he held a summit meeting with Prime Minister Narendra Modi on February 24th and 25th. Speaking to me first will be Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director for South Asia at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., following which I'll have a conversation with Alyssa Iris, a Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan and South Asia at the Center of Foreign Relations, also in Washington, D.C., and both should make for highly interesting and detailed conversations about the nuances of the bilateral relationship and what it means for the growing personal chemistry between uh, Prime Minister Modi and President Trump and how that will impact this relationship going forward. So Michael, thank you very much for joining us. I'm grateful for your being here. Thanks. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Great. And uh, as you know, uh, President Trump has just been, uh, well, he probably still is or just making his way out of India. He's been here for the last two days. Tell me something. Is this visit all that you you thought it could be in terms of, firstly, the optics, and then secondly, the policy accomplishments? I think it really was a successful trip, um, on the understanding that this was a trip with relatively low expectations. Um, I think that uh, Monday, which was really the day of spectacle, went about as well as one could have expected. President Trump gave a speech that I thought was was very sound, it was very well um, written, and I think it reflected a strong understanding of Indian political history and in its invocation of Indian cultural icons, clearly the, his speechwriters knew um, the audience well and knew that that would be uh, well received. I mean, there were no awkward moments. This is an, a very unpredictable guy, to say the least, but you know, I think everything went about as well as one could have expected, and all of the optics and the visuals of you know, President Trump's visit to Taj Mahal and the like were all great. And then in terms of what happened on Tuesday, which was really the day of substance, you know, I think it was fine. I mean, we all know that the, the, the hope for trade deal was not going to materialize. But, um, you know, we still had a number of agreements that were signed, including, I think, a significant one involving uh, U.S. naval helicopters uh, that are going to be sent to, uh, to India. And the sense that I got from hearing Trump and Prime Minister Modi read out their joint statement is that there were discussions on a very wide variety of issues, not just trade, not just defense, but also things like counter-narcotics or prospects for cooperation on counter-narcotics, issues of cybersecurity. And I think that really underscores that this relationship, warts and all, is still a very sound relationship that uh, is sound for one reason because it is so expansive. There's so many different issues that can be discussed, and that's I think what um, what 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 happened. So you know, for me, it was a successful trip. There were no major surprises, either pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, there were no major deliverables, but we didn't expect that. Um, but there were some useful agreements to come out of it. And now I think that the two sides can build on this um, in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think you've really spelled out a lot in terms of the bilateral space and the nitty-gritty of the policies and the sort of cooperative uh, outcomes that we could be looking at. If we just take a small step back and look at the bigger 
you know, strategic sort of regional or Asia-wide picture. Do you think uh, there is a sense of, you know, Indian and American interests converging? Because one interesting point that I picked up from the joint statement towards the end was this whole point about the 5G wireless network. And so, we, of course, we know that, you know, there have been issues between the U.S. and China regarding 5G. Uh, there have been some, uh, actually, skirmishes, people arrested, uh, things that, uh, you know, with, with regards to Huawei and so on. So the, this is a contested space. And in that sense, there are concerns about surveillance or uh, technology that could, in some ways, impair U.S. interests. But India seems to have gone a bit further ahead. Do you see a bit of a dissonance between the two in this regard? Uh, are there other points of convergence where, you know, vis-a-vis this third point, China in the relationship, that the U.S. and India would be closer together? Well, you know, I think that China is really the issue that binds the U.S.-India uh, relationship together at this moment in time, and for the foreseeable future as well. Um, and, you know, it's funny that when you have these high-level meetings uh, between the U.S. and India, you rarely hear the word China mentioned publicly. But it's there, uh, and China has alluded to subtly, and um, you know it's clear that so many of the efforts pursued by these two countries have been meant to promote more cooperation uh, to deal with the um, China challenge. And uh, certainly, you know, the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, which continues to be built out, um, you know, it revolves around a desire to provide counterbalances to China uh, in in the region, and India, I think, sees sees the same uh, sees eye to eye with the U.S. on that. Certainly, the two sides do not necessarily agree in all regards as to how they wish to tackle the China uh, challenge, but certainly they do both regard China as as a challenge. Um, and I think it was interesting that uh, in the course of the last two days. We heard President Trump on at least one occasion um, criticize China, sort of take a swipe at it by suggesting that the U.S. and India have been able to pursue uh, democratic politics for for quite some time, uh, and unlike you know others, with with China being the um, you know the the implied uh, reference uh, right there. So you know we, we could talk about shared values, and we heard a lot about shared values over the last two days, uh, and we hear a lot about the chemistry between Trump and Modi. But for me, what what's the most important thing in this relationship are the shared interests, and particularly when it comes to the China issue. Now, certainly moving forward, I think the two countries are going to have to figure out more specifically how they really want to deal with this China challenge. I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. really wants India to do more than it's comfortable doing in terms of partnering operationally with the United States to push back against China. India is not comfortable with that. But at some point, as this partnership continues to expand, I think that there's going to have to be discussions along those lines. It may not happen during the Trump era, but at some point, I think those discussions have to take place. Okay, and speaking of looking into the future, um, on the matter of trade uh, specifically, um, you know, the joint statement did have comments from uh, President Trump, I think, saying that he was very pleased that, uh, uh, you know, export of energy, for example, India has grown a lot, um, and, you know, U.S. exports to India in general are up nearly 60%. So, at the same time, he had this press conference afterwards where, Again, the same old ghost of uh, Harley Davidson was brought up uh, by President Trump, and it seemed like you know there was a, there were some points of friction that were that happened behind closed doors. Uh, is it? Do you think being an election year, just that President Trump doesn't want to give away anything right now, and he's waiting 
perhaps for his uh, what he thinks will be his victory and then strike a deal with India? Well, you know, it's really hard to know what Trump is really thinking about this. Uh, my sense is that he really does want to get some type of trade deal with India before the election. Um, and I think that um, for him, he got a deal with China. Um, and I think for him, it just, if, if you get a deal with your top strategic rival, you really should be getting a deal with one of your top strategic partners in Asia. Um, and I think that uh, this is something that he's been wanting to do for a long time. There have been a lot of high-level negotiations over a long period of months. And I think that, uh, you know, he, he wants there to be a deal eventually. But again, I mean, he is a tough negotiator. I mean, he said that Modi is a tough negotiator. Trump is a tough negotiator as well, uh, which is one reason why a deal to this point has remained so elusive. And Trump is not going to relent, and especially in an election year. He is not going to want to agree to any type of commercial agreement with India or any other country that could be that could be perceived as um, imperiling American jobs. I mean, jobs have been such a big focus of Trump's political rhetoric. It's so intertwined with his idea of America first and all of that. So, you know, he's going to be careful because on the one hand, he wants to really, he really wants to get that deal, but he also needs to be careful. So, yeah, it suggests to me that I think the negotiations will continue uh, in the coming months. I imagine that there will eventually be a deal sometime before November when the presidential election happens in the United States. But, you know, at the end of the day, all this discussion about, you know, will it happen, will it not happen, I think it really in, uh, underscores what for me is a major theme in the U.S.-India relationship ever since the civil nuclear deal was signed some years ago. And that is that, you know, always waiting for this next big thing, always have this expectation that there's going to be something big, some splashy deliverable, some splashy deal. And so often it doesn't happen. And I think that that civil nuclear deal sets such high expectations for the relationship in terms of concrete, tangible deliverables that there have been a lot of setbacks and expectations. So I think that we just have to accept the fact that it could take some more time. Eventually there will be a deal, a trade deal. Uh, it certainly will be a watered-down version of what might have been ideal um, earlier. But I think there, there will be one. But the important thing in this context is to keep expectations measured. Fantastic. And let me just get your thoughts on one last question very quickly. Um, as you know, uh, there have been some outbreaks of violence in Delhi, some of it apparently quite graphic in terms of the images we're seeing coming out of there. Uh, and this happened absolutely in parallel to the uh, ongoing visit by President Trump. And yet there wasn't much of a mention uh, by the two leaders, obviously, during their parley. So do you think that uh, the, the domestic politic political situation in India could in some way pose any obstacles going forward uh, to progress in the bilateral relationship, especially given that, for example, you know, the Democrats in the U.S. are a little more wary about uh, the things that are happening under this Modi government. Yeah, well, I think, if, if anything, um, what we could see is what had been uh, a relationship undergirded by bipartisan support becoming an increasingly partisan relationship, at least from the context of the United States, just because, you know, to the extent that there's been strong criticism of India and its domestic policies, it has largely, though not exclusively, come from Democrats, and particularly liberal Democrats on Capitol Hill. And certainly, all of these horrific uh, things happening in Delhi over the last 24 to 36 hours with these violent protests, that will, I imagine, attract more criticism um, from 
uh, liberal Democrats in Washington about what's happening and how how the the state has has not responded and all that. Um, but I was not surprised that President Trump in his press conference deflected the questions he received on the citizenship law and on these violent protests. I, I think that uh, you know for him the the focus of this trip was to keep it positive, keep it optimistic, and I think that it would have been awkward for him to start answering those questions, even though Trump is unconventional and one might have thought that, you know, he would throw diplomatic niceties to the wind and just, you know, speak out how he wants. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that these issues are all that concerning for President Trump. Yes, he may well have brought up issues of religious freedom in his private discussions with Prime Minister Modi. But when it comes to these domestic policies in India, to be very candid with you, you know, I mean, Trump himself <laughs> has been... Uh, he he has views and he has tried to pass policies that have been discriminatory and have discriminated against Muslims in particular. So I just don't think these are issues that are going to get his attention uh, in a really big way. And that's why I imagine that if he brought up the religious freedom issue in his private discussions, it probably was very brief. And, uh, you know, when Modi replied and said that, well, you know, we're, we've done a lot of work, things are going fine, Trump was not going to push back on that. He wanted to focus on other things. Now, final note on this, if shared democratic values are really a pillar of U.S.-India relations, then I think that President Trump should be calling out the Indian government, at least privately, for some of these very troubling uh, policies that have come about and some of these very troubling developments with this communal violence that we're seeing in New Delhi over the last few days. But you know, as I said before, I think it's at the end of the day, for Trump and for uh, U.S. officials, a lot of lip service about shared values, but it's the shared interests that I think really loom the most, and that's what's most important from the U.S. side and probably from the Indian side, too, when it comes to this bilateral relationship. Fantastic. Okay, thank you, Michael. That was a really excellent note uh, on which to end this conversation, but I uh, really thank you for your time, and I hope we can circle back at some future date when we are looking at these issues again. Uh, thanks again. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Now let's turn to Alyssa Iris for her thoughts on what the Trump visit to India could mean. Alyssa, welcome, and it's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Happy to join virtually, of course. We're speaking by phone. Exactly. It's great because, uh, as you know, I think whichever part of the world we're in, we're all watching the big event of today, which is uh, the visit of uh, U.S. President Donald Trump to India, uh, his summit meeting with Prime Minister Modi. Um, so what do you think, Alyssa? Did it kind of live up to uh, what you might have expected, both in terms of optics, uh, firstly, and secondly, in terms of uh, policy substance? Well, why don't we take the optics piece first, as you said, and then separately talk about the policy piece, because I um, I'm still waiting to learn about some of the outcomes there on the policy side. Um, I, I think that the optics probably gave President Trump what he was looking for. He repeatedly spoke about the crowd size in the run-up to even before his departure for India. Uh, he kept talking about how many people were going to be greeting him and what a huge crowd. And, you know, it would he'd come back to the United States after... Uh, interacting with so many millions of people in India, and it would be disappointing back in the U.S. I mean, the fact is, he didn't see 5 to 7 to 10 million or whatever number he 
kept inflating it to. Um, but this stadium rally was big, you know, 110 people. Um, it's much larger than any stadium rally that he would normally do in the United States. So I could imagine that um, was exactly what he was looking for very specifically in terms of the ability to perform and speak in front of such a large group. So that's one aspect of the optics. Um, Another aspect of the optics is what was the purpose of the trip? And people keep asking me that question. And I I think one answer is India is an important partner of the United States. And Trump is now in the final year of his term here. And if he didn't go at some point at all, it would send, I think, a quite negative signal about where India had fallen in the relationship So in that sense, you know, uh, going against the counterfactual, the fact that he did take the time to make this trip is, I think, positive to at least continue reinforcing that India is an important strategic partner. It's not an ally. We don't have the depth of that type of alliance relationship that the United States has with other countries. Uh, But India is an important partner, so it's good to reaffirm that. Um, But there's another aspect of the optics that I think came out more today, and that is um, that India and frankly the United States and in different in its own ways, in, India is going through some churn right now and the uh, riots that we saw, the, the communal violence taking place on the streets in Delhi, uh, it's heartbreaking to watch and just to, to have kind of the fact that this has gone on more than 24 hours I think is, is really hard to watch and to know that that is happening against the backdrop of you know, trying to work on some foreign policy issues. I mean, these are just kind of very different sets of images, um, and it's hard to reconcile the two. In fact, I think you can't really. Right. So, I mean, before we move on to the policy issues, so let's let's stay with the optics for a bit. Um, so one thing you I found interesting what you said is that, you know, it is an election year in the U.S. and uh, the final year of President uh, Trump's term in office, and he, in a sense, almost had to make this visit because... It would otherwise leave kind of a question mark over how important India truly was as a, as a partner. And in that sense, though, I, I, I think Prime Minister Modi has also mentioned in his speech, as well as before, that uh, you know he has met, I think, with President Trump five times in the past eight months, uh, including most notably the September 2019 Howdy Modi rally in uh, Houston, Texas, which was seen as highly successful, at least for President Modi and uh, yeah, sorry for Prime Minister Modi. And, President Trump graced that event, and it was seen as an all-round sort of, uh, you know, connection with the Indian-American community and all of that. So do you think that this is all just based on the chemistry between the two men? Uh, and, that, and you know, should President Trump get re-elected, we're going to see much more of that coming to the fore? Or is this also in part or significantly about strategic convergence? And there, you know, maybe we have bigger issues such as China or other questions. So what's driving this relationship? I'm 100% in the strategic convergence camp. I mean, I, I just simply don't believe that we have a kind of uh, capricious whim to develop a foreign policy based on whatever kind of figment uh, of a new idea flies through somebody's mind. I mean, I, th- I think if that were the case, then we would have seen much more of a roller coaster between India and the United States. And in fact, what we've seen is a continued slow, um, at times incremental, uh, but continued progress in um, in almost every aspect of U.S.-India ties, really over, over the course of the past 15 years. But if you think about um, even with the opening from President Clinton, um, uh, if you think about it, really, 
for more than 20 years, we've been going on a very different trajectory together than was the case in in basically most of the 20th century when uh, Dennis Cooks described both countries so memorably as estranged democracies. I just simply don't think that's the case anymore. And that strategic convergence comes across really when you're looking at a lot of issues like China's rise and what it suggests for the priorities and values and type of of organization and interactions we'd all like to see in the larger Indo-Pacific region. Um, Washington and New Delhi are both pretty clear on seeking what now people describe as a free and open Indo-Pacific, but it has been the case for a long time uh, that we would all describe this as a region where we're seeking a balance of power, where no one country can dominate, where we maintain freedom of navigation, uh, maritime security, um, uh, uh, you know, no territorial grabs. Um, I think that has been strengthened in recent years. I, I will say that I think the economic issues are really hard. We do not have, let's call it, a convergence on how quickly or how greatly um, to open markets and collaborate. And here I would certainly argue that I think India is a far more closed market than the United States. Um, so this is a very challenging area for both sides. I think we've got to keep trying, um, but that, that remains a very difficult area of tension. And then there are a whole range of other um, arenas of bilateral cooperation that you know people tend to forget about in the headlines, but we have everything underway from space cooperation to higher ed to uh, women's economic development, entrepreneurship. You know, India hosted the Global Entrepreneurship Summit a couple years ago. Um, we have a very strong people-to-people -people relationship that continues to grow. I mean, you can kind of uh, go through the whole list. Um, I, again, I served in the Obama administration, and one of the issues that we cared about very deeply then was climate change and uh, clean energy. That was a huge area of partnership for us with India at the time. That has certainly uh, atrophied under the Trump administration, which does not prioritize this in the same way. Obviously, India has other partners like France that it works with very closely on this set of issues. I wish we still had that underway with India and hope we can get back to it in the future. But anyway, so put me in the strategic convergence camp very much. Sure, sure. Uh, no, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I guess the one question I was uh, wondering about in terms of the strategic convergence is that there do seem to be a few distinctive shifts that we've seen from the Obama administration to the Trump administration in terms of how they deal with India, but certainly with other allies as well. So obviously, President Trump, right from his campaign days, has been quite focused on uh, trade deficits uh, that America has with other countries. And uh, certainly, India's is you know a small fraction of what uh, the trade surplus that India has with the U.S. is a, a small fraction of what uh, China has with the U.S. But at the same time, it is in a sense a bit of an irritant. So you know, you must have seen in today's uh, sort of coverage that while uh, the joint statement didn't seem to indicate much friction in a sense over the trade issue uh, in the uh, press conference. Uh, uh, President Trump very clearly said that he brought up the Harley-Davidson issue again, and he did did indicate that India had one of the <laughs> highest rates of protection. And this goes back to what you said about India being quite close. So, yeah. again, that was a slightly I'm sorry surprising. To laugh. So one is left wondering, you know, how much of a sort of a, a boxing match was this, and how much was it, of, you know, people just agreeing on on this issue? 
Yeah. Well, President Trump has been pretty clear from the beginning of his time in office that he uh, uh, wants to see the United States have what they refer to as free, fair, and reciprocal. That's a new word that this administration now uses when they talk about trade, uh, trade relationships with countries around the world. And like you said, we, we really have never focused on trade deficits as a kind of element for negotiation before. Um, I guess it was very early in office, maybe in the first couple months of office, Trump in 2017 announced that he wanted his government to undertake a study to examine the most significant trade deficits with countries around the world. Well, guess what? It turns out India was one of these, but came up, you know, number 10 or so. It was very, very low on the list, but came up as a significant trade deficit. Uh, So this became one more element. We already had a long list of trade tensions between India and the United States, and this uh, became one more element added to that list where our trade folks uh, would then say, well, how are we going to find a way to reduce this trade deficit? Um, on the Harleys, you know, <laughs> India does have a very high, uh, uh, you know, close to Brazil in the way that India um, uh, maintains its uh, uh, bound tariffs, but it can move its tariffs up and down, its applied tariffs. So, um India has, uh, I think, a well-deserved reputation as a country that still maintains very high tariffs compared to many others. In particular, if you look at um, the the export-focused economies of Southeast and East Asia um, that have very deeply integrated supply chains that are deeply integrated with each other. Well, this is not something that India is doing because it has high protectionist walls to begin with. So you're not bringing in a lot of components and sending out a lot of finished goods. Um, in a sense, it would be something to pursue. But again, it would involve doing the domestic work at home to make that possible. So the Harley's issue is something the president keeps coming back to. And I, to me, this is this is largely a symbolic issue, but it does get at something. This is an iconic American product manufactured in the U.S. Um, Now we also have a whole kind of, you know, number of different models of Harleys that are actually assembled in India from uh, kits that are exported unassembled from the U.S. But the largest engine Harleys are only manufactured in the U.S. And those still attract a high tariff of 50%. Has India taken the decision to lower that tariff? We'd seen some previews in the run-up to this visit, that uh, the government of India had taken a decision to lower that 50% tariff further, although we didn't see anything about that today in any announcements. I haven't seen anything coming out of the finance ministry indicating a change on that. Perhaps that's the news down the line. Um, but but I think what Trump is getting at by, by talking about Harleys when he does is he uh, is looking for that sort of reciprocity. Um, the U.S. doesn't have a 50% tariff on any Indian motorcycles coming into the U.S., uh, of which I can't imagine there are that many. But in any case, he is looking at this. And uh, it, it, it is a symbolic case that makes sense to people. Why should our exports be ta- taxed so heavy, you know, applied a duty so heavy, so high, to make it harder for people to purchase them in India? So um, and in a sense, I do understand that. I wish we could make more progress on the trade front because I think there's great potential. But these are really hard issues. Right. So I'm going to ask you to do something which is probably the trickiest thing for our foreign policy analysts to do, which is to peer into the crystal ball and tell me 
how you think the trade deal scenario is going to shape up in the next year or so. Because uh, let me give you the negatives and positives as I see them. So on, on the negative side, um, you know, we, we, the U.S. withdrew the GSP last year. Uh, and then just literally, I think it was maybe a days or a week before President Trump came here, there was also that matter of changing India's status, among other countries, from uh, developing to developed, which makes it pretty much, I think, impossible, correct me if I'm wrong, to to get, bring GSP back. And then at the same time, um, I think there have been other sort of tariffs and counter-tariffs that happened during the course of the last two years, which are still very much in place. And finally, I think Robert Lighthizer was supposed to, the USTR was supposed to come either before President Trump's visit or at least during, and neither of those things happened, and he was seen as one of the sort of vectors to take negotiations uh, forward on a trade deal. So that's that's sort of the, the stumbling blocks. On the positive side, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, in fact, in his statement says that the commerce ministers on the two sides are in conversation with each other, and they're going to try and give it a legal shape. That's the phrase he used. And he did say that mm-hmm. they're trying to initiate negotiations for a bigger deal. So how do you mm-hmm. balance the positives and the negatives here? And how do you see it evolving in the course of this election year where President Trump may not be willing to see much before November 2020? Yeah, I saw that statement in their joint press appearance today and wondered what President Trump meant by that. It is possible. I mean, you're absolutely right. that There appears to be a pretty big gap here. And again, I I, I just want (laughs) to make sure it's clear for your readers on this. I I really feel like India needs to move more. India should become a more open economy, not for Americans, but because it will benefit Indian citizens. It will help boost the economy, help grow jobs, help create new opportunities, make it possible to uh, uh, gain those manufacturing jobs that India is still struggling to to grow as a percentage of GDP. I mean, there's a window here, right? With with China uh, having you know wages rising there, so much of the manufacturing that is moving out of China is going to places like Vietnam, Cambodia, and Bangladesh. And you'd think this is a real window for India. Uh, I know there are voices in India that think that it's important to try to protect domestic industries until they're ready to compete. But, you know, it, if now's not the time, I don't know when it is. Like, th- this is the moment because things might be very different in 10 years. Um, but in any case, coming back to what does this trade deal look like in the coming months? Um, it, look, I'm not the trade negotiator here. Uh, but if I were, I would say let's get rid of all the things that we have piled on in the last two years and Take it back to where we were three years ago, in which we already have a very large number of trade tensions anyway. So there's no shortage of quite complicated trade issues to work with. And I simply don't know why both sides are piling onto this. And that means I would, first of all, I consider these the Trump administration's steel and aluminum tariffs to be the single most detrimental they did thing that they did in the first year of office economically. I don't know why we did this. We claimed this national security exemption on this. It was that series of tariffs that we applied on steel and aluminum imports. Again, like with the trade deficits, 
All of a sudden, this hits Indian steel and aluminum imports, which, frankly, nobody in the history of focusing on U.S.-India economic ties had ever talked about Indian steel and aluminum imports as a problem for the relationship. So, honestly, I don't even know why this happened, but it did. And India didn't ask for a specific exemption, so it didn't get one, unlike some other countries. Um, It was in response to those tariffs that the Indian government developed their retaliatory tariffs, which largely hit U.S. ag products, U.S. ag exports. And these aren't the most expensive U.S. exports. Those would be, you know, uh, our, our airplanes and things like that. Uh, but these are really important for our farmers. So uh, I don't know if you've been tracking this issue, but uh, India, again, as I'd mentioned, kind of can, can move its tariffs up and down to be responsive to its own market conditions. For example, a poor monsoon or a better monsoon. Uh, India had a poor monsoon a few years ago, so it lowered its tariffs on uh, pulses. And so U.S. pulse exporters did very well. India is one of the world's largest markets, if not the largest, on pulses. Well, good monsoon in 2017, tariff goes up. Now there's a retaliatory tariff that goes back on top of that. So U.S. pulse exporters are actually really hurting. Um, you, you see these tariffs. It hasn't hurt the market so much for export for our almond exporters. Um, but, you know, you can kind of go through the list of U.S. ag exports and, you know, let's get rid of these retaliatory tariffs and go back to at least where we were. And India should lower its tariffs more generally for everyone. Um So there's that. I think these GSP issues, I mean, I I didn't think that this was going to end up being the huge big deal that it has become. Um, The precipitating problem that led to India's GSP removal actually had to do with the dairy uh, producers and our medical device manufacturers. And I did a... I did a kind of um, field guide on this, so there's more detail there with links to the primary documents yeah, if actually, any of your you listeners are interested. Yeah, actually, really a fantastic field guide, and uh, we, we carried a piece on it, which uh, we carried a piece on this issue, which uh, kind of referenced that. Um, I can send you the link later. Oh, great. No, I'm glad that was helpful because, I, you know, that issue with GSP and kind of pulling back the history of it really shows how important market access was for the fact of eligibility for GSP and what happened with the medical device manufacturers, price caps, and then being told that they have to sell at a price that they can't sustain and they aren't allowed to pull their devices from the market because the regulator won't allow them. I mean, this is a real problem. Um, So those manufacturers petitioned to have India removed from this GSP program, as did dairy producers who said they'd presented different types of solutions for a label that would indicate the type of diet that dairy cows had been fed to provide that information for consumers. But those proposals were rejected. So then they joined that petition. I mean, you can kind of, you can see how these things end up being linked when you kind of go back and look at all this. So um, it would be great to roll back the price caps on these medical devices, find a way to solve this dairy issue. There's a way to solve things uh, but people have to be willing to kind of go the extra mile. I mean, look at how hard the nuclear deal was. That took years to work through, but we did it. I mean, I just can't believe there's no solution on dairy exports. But I mean, in, the, in a sense, in the nuclear deal, uh, President George W. Bush himself did a lot of the heavy lifting. And indeed, indeed, there was a lot to do in Congress to get it through, not to mention, you know, heavy lobbying with uh, other, say, members of the NSG and so on. And do you think uh, President Trump is of, of mind to do something of that sort? Is he is he as happy or excited about the uh, 
Well, what would he need to do on this dairy issue? Actually, we need to to see more help and and action on the Indian side because, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, Indian regulators keep saying that proposals from the U.S. side just aren't workable. I don't know what would be workable, uh, but we've got to be able to find a way through some of these things. Um, you know, find some openings. There has to be a way. I think we've covered quite a bit of ground there. And moving to something that is a little positive for the bilateral space, uh, defense spending. So here we had uh, what looked like a concrete you know, achievement, uh, the, the helicopter sale, uh, $3 billion of defense equipment uh, for India to purchase in total. Um, this looks very positive, as does uh, you know, promise to cooperate more closely even on uh, counterterrorism, uh, intelligence sharing, counter-narcotics. Uh, and uh, even on opioid production. Um, is this something that's really going to come to center stage in the months and year ahead? Well, I, I think it is actually already center stage, I mean, specifically the defense and strategic cooperation, perhaps not the opo op opioid uh, joint fighting. That Apparently there's a new uh, memorandum of understanding on that. Um, but I do think that we're already in a place where it's it's the defense and strategic side where there's the clearest agreement and clearest convergence um, and ability to take things forward, again, even if it's incremental. I think for, for some in the United States who are used to working with a treaty ally, it feels like everything goes very slowly with India, and it takes, I don't know, four years to negotiate a, a foundational agreement, if not longer. Um, but, you know, we've gotten there, and if you if you look how differently things were 15 years ago, it's actually quite transformed. So... I'm not as worried about speed on these issues. I do think that they continue to improve. We're supposed to see some more information about um, whatever the new agreement is on counterterrorism. I'd love to see that it hasn't yet been released, but that should be one of the big policy outcomes of this visit. And then, of course, the uh, announcement of the naval um, helicopter, the Seahawks, and then um, India's acquisition of more Apache helicopters. I do think that's an important vote um, for American uh, defense platforms, and it also indicates how important the maritime security piece is for India, and that's an area where we really, really have seen a lot of convergence in the past five, six years. Definitely. There's there's tremendous naval cooperation underway. Okay, that's good to know. And lastly, Alice, what about this, uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of just the optics again about what's happening in Delhi and, uh, you know, I think President Trump did mention religious freedom in his uh, Motera Stadium speech or uh, maybe it was even in the joint statement, I'm not sure. But uh, later on uh, in the press conference again, it popped up in the sense, uh, you know, the President Trump did say that he's spoken to Prime Modi about uh, even the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act. And uh, however, Prime Minister Modi gave him reassurances about his own engagement with the Muslim community in India, and President Trump seemed quite satisfied about it. So, so I, I think, you know, looking both at President Trump as well as, you know, this being an election year, looking at the Democrats in the U.S. who have expressed more concern about what's happening in India in this regard, do you think uh, this is something that might come up again in, in the months ahead, in 2020, leading up to the election, and maybe even beyond? Will it come up with President Trump? Um, hard to know. I, I mean, it, it, his administration did um, a background briefing on Friday 
uh, prior to his departure for India and had previewed that the that religious freedom was a very important issue for the administration and that the president planned to raise it in his conversation with Prime Minister Modi. And I do think that that President Trump's speech at Motera Stadium, and I, I will say I, I was worried that he would kind of take this and turn it into a U.S. style Make America Great Again rally, and he really stuck to the script. He stuck to his prepared remarks, so I'm glad he did that. Um, and, and there were nudges in that speech, not to to kind of try to embarrass India, where he was a guest, obviously, but to try to nudge and say that this is important. Now we don't know what the conversation was like between them in the restricted meeting or in the larger bilateral meeting. We don't know what people spoke about. Was it frank? Was it a few words here and there? Um, these are obviously important issues. And I, I think the kinds of, um, certainly today's violence is uh, quite frightening to see. Um, the, the protests against the Citizenship Act throughout most of India have been largely peaceful. Um, the cases of violence we saw in December uh, were almost entirely limited to UP and the many reports actually of excessive use of police force in those cases. Um, so, you know, this is the, the issue of how India resolves and deals with what has become a really important question of citizenship and secularism in the country is for Indian citizens to work through. And this is obviously very challenging. As we have seen these months, the protests are continuing. Many citizens are upset. Um, it's hard for an outside leader to comment publicly on India's domestic challenges uh, because India, historically, the Indian government, which I would distinguish from Indian citizens who, of course, all have their own views and might like or dislike comment from outsiders. But the Indian government historically uh, rejects comment on domestic affairs, seeing these as matters of domestic sovereignty. Um, that certainly has been the approach over years and years and is not unique to the Modi government in particular. Um, but it is hard to – we just don't know to what extent – uh, President Trump was able to say this is an issue that many Americans are concerned about. This is something that uh, Democrats and Republicans are concerned about. We saw Senator Lindsey Graham raise this um, in the Munich Security Conference. Uh, but but people aren't raising this issue in the United States to try to make accusations or point fingers or do anything. It's because people are genuinely concerned about where things are headed for a country that so many of us look to and think of as the most amazing demonstration of secularism and unity and diversity. And those aren't just empty words. If we are talking about the importance of a free and open Indo-Pacific and an arena in which uh, a, a country can demonstrate the power of democracy the power of the ability to deliver prosperity and development for citizens, even at low income levels and grow, you know, have the ability to vote even uh, before reaching middle income level. This was a kind of historically unique experiment that India did in the 20th century. And it's amazing. And it continues to be amazing. It doesn't mean there aren't problems. 
But if we're talking about uh, uh, the ability to showcase a country that represents uh, democracy and the ability to, 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 to deliver for its citizens absent an authoritarian system like China's, it's India. And so, man, I'm voting for India to come through on this, you know? That's why it's hard to see these kinds of challenges. I think that's why so many Americans are really worried about this. Fair enough. No, that's a really uh, sort of positive and hopeful note, maybe, uh, to wrap up this conversation. Um, thank you so much, Alyssa. Appreciate your time. And uh, maybe we can circle back to these issues in the future when uh, there's another visit or something else comes up. But thank you. When we have a trade deal. How about that? Yes. <laughs> that would be that would be <laughs> <laughs> Right. Thank you.